Welcome to Trine Day's The Journey, conversations with publisher Chris Milligan. I am Bruce DeTorris. With us is Edward Dodge, author of A History of the Goddess, From the Ice Age to the Bible. The early Hebrews were pagan, and they believed that God had a wife. The rise of monotheism got rid of her in many ancient traditions. Ed's book reinterprets many Bible stories by re-including the goddess and reframes the Bible by comparing it to the mythologies of neighboring cultures. Chris and Ed, it's great to be with you both. Thank you. Ed, uh, I really appreciate you coming on. I'm very excited about the book. I think that it brings a, uh, a lot to the reader because, uh, you know, us as uh, people growing up in this world, oh, we get taken to church, we get taken to school. As I found as I was growing up that I had to relearn uh, a, a couple of things. And uh, so I was very excited about the book. And now you came to us uh, because of uh, Chris Bennett, is that correct? Yeah, Chris Bennett is the one who introduced me to you. Um, I've been reading his books and his cannabis and religion research definitely was a, a big influence on me and drove a lot of that, that aspect of, of my book. I pretty, like I say it in there that when it comes to cannabis and ancient religion, I learned it from Chris first and it went from there. Yeah, it's, it's been a subject that's, uh, there's been quite a few uh, uh, books, uh, especially most recently. I mean, when, when Chris first started uh, talking about it, he was called all kinds of names and, and, and everything. I'm just very happy at trying day to uh, continue uh, this conversation and this, and this understanding because it really does get to the core of why we're walking down here on this earth and, and our relationship with, with other people. Because as time goes on, we learn that, you know, some of the uh, oh, myths and some of the hatreds and other things that we were taught aren't really true. And so now what has been your journey? This isn't something that uh, you were taught as a kid or, you know, what, how, how, was, how did you find out about this? What, what, what's your journey? Yeah, absolutely. So my journey begins when I was a teenager. I was a hot smoking teenager. And um, I read Jack Hare's The Emperor Wears New Clothes when I was 17. And that book absolutely changed my entire life. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but it's uh, oh, yeah. underground cult classic that gives the history of cannabis and how marijuana is also hemp. And it was used for shipbuilding and it has this really profound history. And you can make renewable energy from it, hemp for fuel and hemp for all, everything to replace oil. It was just absolutely blew my mind. It blew my mind in a couple of directions, both that cannabis was this resource, but also that we were being lied to. So I, I grew up in Washington, D.C. My father worked for the federal government. I grew up in and around the government. And the idea that the government was lying to us and then it was going to arrest us for these lies, it was, I just found totally offensive. I mean, I was offended by it when I was 17 and I'm offended by it now. And it started me down this journey of wanting to know why. Why are they lying to us? And also, why does the lie stick? Cannabis has been around forever. These opinions were formed a long time ago. So why does our culture that embraces alcohol and tobacco hate marijuana, which was causes no death and no disease and just makes you feel good? Like, what's the problem? I wanted to understand why. And it ultimately arrived in this book and realizing it's all tied up in religion, which I didn't really know until relatively recently. Yeah, there's some karmic stuff uh, going around here. And I, I, I was a good friend of, of Jack Herrera. And there was one time I was uh, at the High Times booth, uh, running the High Times booth at the Seattle Hemp Fest. And Jack had had a problem with his, uh, his, his son. And so he says, I'm not going to be at his booth. Can I come to your guys' booth? 
And so uh, one of the publishers of High Times was there. And I says, well, that's okay. Yeah, you can, you, you can come. You know, Jack was kind of, uh, oh, he didn't really care too much about rules. And basically <laughs> at, at the Seattle Hemp Fest, it was, you know, okay to go smoke some pot, you know, but you had to go smoke it over by the, by the lake, by the, by the water. You weren't supposed to, you know, smoke it openly and, and stuff like that. Well, Jack was selling a, a, a pipe to sell that pipe, he would uh, give people the pipe and he had a, some marijuana there. And, and so pretty soon, you know, and this was right in the open, right near the, the main stage and everything. And pretty soon there was uh, three uh, Seattle policemen sitting there and uh, they were looking at that. And finally, I, I say to this, uh, the High Times publisher, I say, well, uh, what, what do you think? And he says, well, you know, if they wanna bust Jack Herrera at the High Times booth at the Seattle Hemp Fest, let them, okay? <laughs> because uh, in our booth, we, we, uh, we worked with uh, a bunch of lawyers. So the, the main lawyer for, for Washington for pot offenses was right at the booth at the same time. And, and it was real funny because pretty soon the, the policemen, they kind of were having the same conversation, it seemed. And they finally says, they finally just left. And the thing that happened was freedom just opened up and pretty soon everybody was smoking pot everywhere you know <laughs> because this really is you know when, when you look at it you know why when the, in the 30s okay they didn't really make pot illegal because we weren't dumbed down enough to know that you couldn't make a plant illegal and so what they did was they put a hundred dollar tax on, per ounce okay so uh, that pretty much uh, uh stop that but by the time we got dumbed down enough when leary got busted going across the border to mexico that's when they started the federal laws against pot and and the karmic part is is these guys chose pot okay because anything you make out of out, out of oil you can make from cannabis so cannabis was you know the, one of the largest competitors to oil so it has to do with the boomers who were you know teens and preteens in the 60s, okay, our, our uh, generation wasn't supposed to cohere. We were supposed to be a pieced out, drugged out generation, but for want of a better term, we uh, just jumped aside and created a, a counterculture. And we did cohere around a joint being smoked around a circle with a little bit of LSD thrown in. And when you look at the cycle of generations, you see we were the idealistic group. And so they were trying to shut down the idealistic group but because that didn't happen, that's one of the reasons why we have all this change going on today. And once we get into the, to the realm of religion, it really uh, affects quite a bit. You bring up in your book about how the Hebrews, they started being, what's the term you use? Mono-idolatry? It's not... Monolatry. Right. So like... Can you explain all that? It's pretty clear from the scholarship that, that they're polytheistic. But the question is whether they're just normal polytheists like everybody else, pagan the same as everybody else, or are they elevating one god above the rest? So there's a couple different terms for it. Some people call it henotheism or it's or monolatry. I call it monolatry because it's still idolatry. Idolatry is when you got a statue and you're, the statue represents the god, you gotta you know feed, give it food every day. That's idolatry. So I'm saying they are I I I'd say they are doing idolatry because they've still got the golden calf there, so they're still worshiping an idol. But they're only worshiping one god. They recognize all the other gods, but they're focused on just one. Um, so that's why it's monolatry instead of uh, 
that kind of separates them a little bit from the rest of the pagans. But they're basically just pagans. And the early Hebrews are basically just pagans. Right. And kind of a theme of your book, too, is about how it actually goes back to one reason I, I uh, oh, in my late teens, I became a vegetarian. And so I, I decided to read the Bible because I wanted to see how come uh, the Jews don't uh, kill doves when a kid reaches 12 anymore. And, and you talk about how part of the change to this monotheism and stuff is kind of a thing to, to stop the child sacrifice, to, to, to stop the, the ritual sacrificing of people. Well, there was. It's, I think it's specific to the, the Phoenician ball worshiping culture that they really did do child sacrifice. And so the Canaanites of the Bible are also the Phoenicians from Lebanon, and they were dominated the Mediterranean before the Greeks did. They were the original mariners. They set up all the original colonies. One of the first sailors all around the Mediterranean. They were fabulously wealthy and, you know, and were the masters of like luxury and trade. But they had child sacrifice and they've proven it. Carthage in North Africa was one of their colonies. Um, and they've proven all the child sacrifice that was going on there. And it tracks with the biblical descriptions. One of the things that's going on is that with the introduction of monotheism, it's like it's a reformation. It's a, it's a new religious idea that's being instituted and they're rebelling against the old religious order. And I do think that those Phoenicians, Canaanites, were a particularly bloodthirsty religion. Um, Anat, who's the consort of Baal, is also just particularly bloody and violent. Um, she is equivalent of Kali from the Hindus, if you're familiar with her. She is like, wears a skull necklace and a belt of hands, and she's dripping in blood. And then Baal also is just killing people all the time. I mean, it's a, they're particularly like bloody gods. So I do think there was an appetite in the community for some new religious ideas to come along. Well, and you know, you've got uh, Isaac or Isaac go kill me a son. Oh yeah, and, oh yeah, and all the stories about child. So yeah, with Abraham and Isaac, I think that the oral stories of Abraham. Some scholars say this that Isaac really dies, and that they later on change the story to have Isaac survive. And there's parallels to this in the Greeks. The, the Greek Olympian gods are being written at the exact same time. They're they're parallel cultures, and these stories are being written down at the same time. And so the Greeks have a parallel story about. Iphigenia, who is part of the, uh, the Iliad, she gets sacked. She was the daughter of Agamemnon, who was the leader of the Mycenaean Greeks in the Iliad, who leads the Battle of Troy. Before they leave for Troy, sort of a, pre a prequel to the to the Iliad, they sacrifice his daughter Iphigenia, and uh, that leads to another a whole other story in Greeks called the Oresteia, where Agamemnon gets killed later on after the Iliad. And so there's multiple versions of that story, too, where sometimes a girl dies and sometimes she's rescued at the last moment, just like Abraham. And I think in both cultures, what's happening is that the Greeks are also having a reformation. They're also introducing new gods. A lot of their mythology is about how they're getting rid of the old gods and the old ways uh, where child sacrifice had been done. And the new religious ways is like, we're not going to do this old superstitious stuff. Public sex rituals, too. Um, I think they were having like, agricultural sex rituals where it's like sex makes the flowers grow like literally like we want to fertilize this field we're going to go out in the field and have an orgy um i think it's a particularly sexually promiscuous culture and i think that's part of what the religious reformations are going is going on but the hebrews go too far because they get rid of the feminine divine altogether they like deny that the mother goddess even exists as a concept uh, and it's just the heavenly father alone my basic premise is that the heavenly father and the earthly mother are the original gods and then we can trace their traditions all the way through history all the way back in time, and that just the names change, the mythologies change, but there's always an earthly mother and a heavenly father, and they're in the gates, and they're the parents of all the other gods. But when the Hebrews come along with monotheism, they say it's going to be the heavenly father alone, and we get rid of everybody else. 
all the children gods, they all get killed off. And the earthly mother, she doesn't get killed off, though. She's still around. She just gets beaten up and locked in the closet and, like, shoved out of the way. So we don't get to see her so much. But all the witches and whores and homosexuals and plant drug folks that have been being persecuted for the last 2,000 years are all, one way or another, followers of the goddess. And all the indigenous people, too, that all believe in the earthly mother, they've all been persecuted by Christians, too. So... You know, there, there's all this information coming out now about how, you know, these ancient uh, Hebrew temples or whatnot, they, they're finding cannabis being burnt there and, and stuff yeah. like that. The, the evidence is, the arche- archaeological evidence is, is that they were using cannabis in their rituals. And, and you know, as far as uh, Chris and, and Sula Bennett, you know, they show that the cannabusum and, and it was, you know, part of the uh, smoke inside the temple and uh, in the tabernacle and all of this. So how did it go away? Well, physically, it never went away. I mean, there's been cannabis in the Middle East forever. They've been smoking hash in Lebanon. I mean, there's still one of the arguments I make is at the Baalbek Valley in Lebanon, where they grow weed today, that that's where they're growing weed in the Bible, like that it's the same place. They've been growing weed there literally forever. And so it never went away. It's just that these religious traditions, they get purged. And so you just got to track who's in charge. You get the, the Phoenicians go away, they get taken over by the Persians, and then the Greeks come in, and then you get the Hellenistic period, so all the gods are all being syncretized with the Greeks, then the Romans come in, and all by the time you get to Rome, it's all the Roman gods, so Baal and Astart and all the goddesses of the Bible, they've all been absorbed into the Roman pantheon as Jupiter and Venus, and they're still there. They were in the Roman times, after they burnt the second temple, sacked Jerusalem, and the second temple after Jesus, they built a temple to Jupiter and a temple to, uh, to Venus. There's a temple to Jupiter on the, on the Temple Mount, and the temple to Venus is where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is now. Uh, they, the Christians went and tore down the temple to Venus and turned it into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. What was the most amazing thing you learned while researching the book? Um, and there's this whole theological notion that there is, like, I can make a theological argument now for the life of God. Like, I want to go have some debates with some Christians and atheists about, like, the theological proposition of goddess, that there is, in fact, a mate to the Heavenly Father that we can see today. Right, right. Well, I mean, you know, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the Christians have, you know, uh, the Holy Trinity. And, you know, I mean, you go to India, they have, you know, a, a Trinity there. And, you know, it, it's a fairly, fairly common thing. And then, uh, you know, within the uh, Catholic tradition, at the at the very least, I mean, the Holy Mary, Mother of God, became quite a, uh, you might say, a stand-in for... Uh, yeah, I, I track it right through how the, the Virgin Mary collects up all, syncretizes all these old symbols in Ephesus, which is where they have the greatest goddess temple of all of antiquity, the biggest temple ever built. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the Grand Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. And that's exactly where... The Virgin Mary is declared the mother of God by the Catholic Church in the same town, same place. It collects all the iconography of the earlier pagan goddesses and just absorbs it all in the Virgin Mary. What what effect do you think uh, this understanding is going to have? You know, I mean, are, are they going to try and uh, stuff everything back in the bottle? Or can think, we have... Uh, we're, we're like living in history right now. Like the 21st century is like very dramatic times. I think we're in a religious war and people just don't know it yet. I think the whole 21st century is all going to be driven by wars of religion. Christian nationalism, Islamic jihad, and I think the left is just hasn't found their religion yet. What I've come to discover about religion is that it's like the baseline of how a culture organizes itself. 
It provides the basic set of, of organizing principles because the world, we live in a fundamentally mysterious world. There are fundamental mis mysteries out there. Like how was the universe created? What's going to happen after we die? What's our purpose in life? We don't have answers to these questions. Nobody ever has. But we have this existential angst that we need an answer. And so we just create an answer. They're all fiction. Every single one of them is a fiction. But it's a useful fiction that helps us like collectively agree on something. Like we all agree on this. And then we can all move forward together because we have some set of beliefs that are speaking to a mystery. Right. Now, now you know, there's some people, that have, there's uh, oh, uh, Caesar Messiah out there, uh, people saying that uh, the story of Christ is actually story of Tiberius or, or something like that. And I mean, I do find that Jesus of Nazareth was a historical figure. I do think that uh, the religions have uh, puffed him up a bit. But uh, what has your research shown? So I, I have this whole piece in, the, in my book about the resurrection. I, I do believe he's a historical figure. I don't believe he's divine, but I do believe the resurrection happened. I have a whole theory for it. I think he fakes his death um, using a mystery potion, which I argue is made from cannabis, because we know from science that cannabis doesn't kill and that a very strong dose of it can knock you out for two days and make you look dead. Like, like the science shows that catalepsy is one of the primary things that cannabis does in strong doses. I get the whole theory from Chris Bennett, who goes into more elaborately on it in terms of like, there's a lot of history of Hindu fakirs uh, in, in India doing these demonstrations for British colonialists where they would, for the combination of meditation, yoga, and cannabis drugs, they would fake their death, be, be, be like declared dead in front of witnesses, buried by their assistants, and in turn, after, you know, dug back up after a few days or even a few weeks, um, and then nursed back to life. And I, my premise is that's what's happening on the cross, that Jesus goes on purpose, like evil can evil, risking his life, knowing that he's got assistance from the women, the three Marys, the Mother Mary, Mary Magdalene, and Mary Salome, and they help him, along with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, that it's all, they've all got it ready. That tomb is a, is a room that's waiting for them to lay him down, where he can be sedated. So basically, he's up on the cross. They sedate him. This is in the Bible, where they give him the sour wine, um, and then he immediately expires. And, and it's very telling because crucifixions normally take days. And he, Jesus expires after just a couple hours, immediately after taking this mystery potion. So my proposition is that, and now this is all a theory, but my proposition is that this was planned. They give him this mystery potion, it sedates him, makes him look dead. They bring him down, he gets stabbed, which was probably not part of the plan. They bring him down off the cross and they treat him with medicines and they carefully nurse him and they wrap his wounds and bandage him up and let him sleep for two days. Then they go back Sunday morning and they wake him up and he's alive. And he probably was so injured that he dies 40 days later. That's my take on it. But I think, I think something happened. Something dramatic really happened with that guy. You know, the Muslims follow him too, and they don't think he's divine. You know, the best evidence we have of Jesus is, is his brother, James the Just, who was the best attested historical figure of all of them. There's no evidence that he thought Jesus was divine either. Right, um, right. What's your hope for the book? What do you want to see this book do? Oh, I, thought, I hope it starts a huge conversation. And I hope it could be as far as like a franchise, you know, the kernel of a franchise for a lot more material. Like, uh, Have you talked to friends about what your, you know, your, your, your supposition? Yeah, everybody thinks I'm nutty. Like, none of my friends are into the Bible. But I'm just sort of like, I, I want to get into conversation with people a little more, get into some of the Bible stuff. I got some pretty provocative material in there about Miriam about right. a lot, you know, the prophet Elijah, Queen Jezebel, I got a whole big thing, a whole big thing about King Saul. Yeah. 
no, I, I, I enjoyed the book and, and, and the uh, Bible part and, and the, the earlier part. And it, I mean, to me, it, it's, uh, it's a very, very solid book. Talk about the farmer shepherd thing. Cain and Abel in the Bible, we all know, it was always sort of questionary, like why was Cain's offerings rejected? Like, what did he do wrong, his offerings of vegetables? But I came to realize I was in reading Sumerian mythology. So Sumerians are the oldest writing we have. They come from Mesopotamia. It's the very original inventors of writing. So the first, oldest cuneiform before Babylon. And this is the roots of the biblical tradition because the Bible characters all come out of Mesopotamia. And so they have all these traditions about the farmer and the shepherd. Um, and these are very important characters and sort of very important like uh, symbols that they have. They have all these sort of pairs of symbols and farmer and shepherd is one of them. Uh, and so I put together this notion that the farmers, they're the first people to settle the first towns and the first cities. And they worship the goddess. They worship Mother Earth because they're very concerned about their crops. Um, but the shepherds are also there and they're, but they're not so much in the town. They're wandering around following, you know, they're grazing their animals. They're nomadic. So they're out in the countryside looking up at the sky, worshiping the heavenly father. They're not really concerned with the crops and the, you know, agriculture. And so you get these two rival traditions, almost like Democrats and Republicans, like liberals and conservatives. They, they know each other, they're interacting with each other, but we got the heavenly father shepherds over here. We got the earthly mother farmers over here. And the Sumerians talk about them being friends, uh, but they have this explicit mythology about how the shepherds become the kings and sort of take over the love of the goddess from, from the farmer and the shepherds become the kings. Now the shepherds I contend are the first men to come in from the outside and take up weapons and start attacking the settlements. And so they come in by force. And that's when civilization asserts itself in the Bronze Age. And we, we said we transitioned from Neolithic settlements that were very egalitarian or very goddess-centric to with the invention of bronze, we get the invention of weapons. And that's when the men start to assert themselves. And the warrior kings take over all of society. And we get an increasingly patriarchal society. And you can trace the degradation of women's positions in society from like 5,000 years ago to about 2,500 years ago when they sort of bottom out with the Bible. <laughs> um, but you can track the women going from a high position down to a low position um, over that 2,500 year span. And it, they're symbolized by the farmers and the shepherds. So in Samaria, in Sumer, farmers and shepherds are friends. But when you get to the Bible, when the Hebrews identify themselves as shepherds, they're not friends with the farmers at all. They want to eliminate the farmers. That's the people from Jericho. That's the Canaanites operating these original towns. They're the goddess-worshipping farmers. The Hebrew shepherds coming in from the hills, they want to come in and take over those towns and get rid of all of their scandalous behavior because, like, it's very sexual. They party a lot. They drink and have drugs and have sex and have parties with drums. I think it's like a bunch of hippies, man. I think the hippies would be right at home in Ishtar's temple. And I think these Hebrew shepherds coming from the outside want to bring some order to the place. So I think there's something to be said of these, these old time, you know, of the Bible stories of like how sinful they were. I was always curious about this. How, what were these Canaanites doing really as a child in church? I was wondering like, what were the Canaanites doing that the Hebrew prophets were so upset about? And now I realized like, okay, on one hand, they weren't just people. They weren't doing anything that bad, but it was like sex and drugs and, and like a lot of carrying on. <laughs> you know, the, the Ashrach pole, or however you say that. The term. Asherah pole. So uh, the Asherah pole. So Asherah is the, is the, in the Phoenician pantheon, the Canaanite pantheon, Asherah is the wife of El. And so Israel, the, the Hebrews are originally worshiping El before they worship Yahweh. Asherah is the wife of El. She's the Canaanite mother goddess. And so an Asherah pole appears many times in the Bible, like over 40 times. And it's a pole that stood next to the altar of God and the altar of Baal. And the Hebrews always tried to chop it down. 
but that was very unpopular. The people would put it back up as soon as they got the chance. But it's basically a totem pole. It's part of these traditions. The totem pole is a tradition that goes all around the world, all the way back to the dawn of Neolithic, uh, like earth worship. And a maypole that they have in Europe, it's a part of the same tradition. It's all earth worship tradition. So the, the Native American totem poles, the Asherah pole, the maypole, and then there's one called the Shigir Idol, which is like 10,000 years old that they found like in Siberia or someplace. I, I was dragged to church every, every Sunday until I uh, left the house. I never heard one preacher ever talk about the, those, those poles. You know, I, I'd gone to church Bible. all growing up, and I had never once heard mention of Asherah one bit. I had to totally dig in. I had no idea what they were talking about. I was like, wife of God? No one has ever mentioned a wife of God to me. So you asked me my, my goal, Chris. My goal for this book would be someday for there to be a great big Asherah pole right in the middle of the Washington Mall, right in the middle of Washington, D.C., right in line of the Capitol, in the Washington Monument, you have a big old Asherah pole right there. <laughs> so, so, sounds good. Sounds good. Well, I, I, I'd like to, uh, uh, I've got a goal. I'd like to get them to uh, speak honestly about the uh, JFK assassination for, for one thing. I think that would really uh, help our uh, country uh, move forward. And, well, when, they, uh, when they finally expose the CIA's involvement in the drug trade, it's going to be one of the biggest scandals of all time. Well, we've been exposing it for a long time, but still officially, uh, they have nothing to do with it. I mean, it uh, just shows the collusion of the mainstream media that like this stuff has like totally been there for a long time. Right. And they just like don't dig in. Why? Because the people who own the companies are, are in the CIA and the CIA makes it their point to do that and not even a secret that they do. That. Yeah, well, I, I, go, I go to a secret society rather than just the straight CIA because I mean, the CIA is a great whipping boy. You can tell the American public that the CIA did it, and they'll just say, oh, <laughs> you know. So I, I think we need to dig a little bit deeper uh, than, than the CIA. But so they can uh, blow up the CIA, and then the, the secret society will still be intact behind the scenes, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, it probably so, will happen. Uh, and, any last words? Well, you know, this is my first podcast, so I hope there'll be a lot more. I'm really excited to uh, get this story out there and start digging into some of these uh, really fun and, and dramatic retellings of these familiar Bible stories and get people to realize that it's not just about are you a believer or an atheist. We can believe in something different. We can believe in something new. Like, we can remake our religions. The world needs religion. We just need new ones. Amen. Amen. Onwards, Edward. And and. and let me tell the people out there, your, your book is really great. It, it's really good. It, it, people need to read it. It, it really uh, has to do with what's going on today because, you know, there's a lot of change and there, there is a paradigm shift that is going on. And part of a paradigm shift is new understandings and, you know, leaving the old behind and, and, and going towards uh, a new, better world where people are treated nice. You know, I mean, Lord have mercy. There's really not a lot of reason for us to be treating people the way that they get treated in this world. So, amen, onward.